This is the Christian Heritage London podcast from London. Well, it is a great privilege for me to be sitting here with Tim Dieppe, the head of public policy at Christian Concern. How are you, sir? Well, it's a great privilege of me to be sat here with you, Ben. Yeah, I'm loving it. It's great. Excellent. Yeah, and you've come. Do you know East London well? No, I don't. I'm not sure I've ever been to Mile End, actually. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, I don't know. Really. I don't think you'd ever want to come back, would you? <laughs> Mile End is not, is not the nicest bit of London. I think it's quite nice, actually. I was, uh, yeah, I was intrigued. Yeah. My daughter refuses to come back here. Having been with me, she says, no, I'm not going back there. She, just, really? she thinks it's so gross. <laughs> But we're sitting here, having said that, we're sitting here in the offices of uh, East London Tabernacle Baptist Church, which very kindly give us uh, space here. It's a delight to sit down with you, Tim. You obviously do not originally come from London. Where do you come from? Yeah, so I grew up in Stockport, actually, just south of Manchester. So my parents were there, and yeah, we grew up there. Yeah, I can hear a little bit of it still in your accent. Well spotted. <laughs> <laughs> and when did you end up in London? So I studied in Oxford and then had a gap year. And in the gap year, I went and helped in a church plant in Barnet for that gap year. And then oh, really? I started applying for jobs in London um, during that year and ended up working in finance in London. Then stayed in Barnet ever since. Did actually. you study economics? No, I actually studied um, maths and computing. Mm-hmm. And um, I thought I'd go into computing kind of career, um, computer programming, that kind of thing. And I was applying for jobs like that. None of them were quite getting there. And I saw a job, an advert for a job in fund management. And I thought, oh, would you know what, that looks quite interesting. Let's apply for that. So I applied for it. And I actually got an interview. And in the interview, I thought, you know what, actually, this is a really interesting job. And I should take it more seriously. I did not get that job. But the next fund management job I applied for, I got the job. And it's because they said, we've given you the job because you seem to know more about what this job involved than anyone else. That's only because I'd gone and read up about it and sort of learnt a little bit about it um, and taken it a bit more seriously. Wow. And I think that God was in that because I could have become such a nerd in, uh, in computer programming. It's quite an enjoyable thing, solving puzzles and that kind of thing. Um, but in fund management, I, I was forced to come out of myself and uh, engage with people. There's a lot of people interaction mm. with analysts and also chief executives of companies. And I was forced to lead meetings with chief executives of major companies quite early in my career wow. and chair a meeting with somebody who would have been quite intimidating to me at that young age. And it really grew me in confidence. And I really think God sort of developed my character mm. through that. Really. Wow. Yeah, yeah it's, it's, it's like a, you know, when you're in fund management, it's not only meeting people, but making decisions which have well, great significance because you're immediately well, investing into companies. You say great significance, not like medics, right? <laughs> yeah, it's, not, it's not life and death decisions, <laughs> right? It's only money. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but, but it's still very, very measurable. You know every day whether you've done better than the market or not. And yes. so it's very, very hard not to let your emotions be controlled by, you know, today or this week, I've done well. And, you know, then next week... I'm doing worse than everyone else. Yeah, it's, mm. And that's a challenge as well. And that's, mm. that's interesting. That's striking. Yeah. I like that comparison. I was working at Imperial College for a while. And we occasionally have to write to people uh, who were like senior, senior um, surgeons. And right. say, can you make a meeting at a certain time? And the guy said, I'm sorry, I'm operating from three till five. And you kind of go, you know, the guy's going to be cutting someone open between three and no, that's, five. That's proper decision making. Wow, yes. exactly. There you yes. go. Yes. But now you are at a Christian Concern, which is yes. a unique and extremely significant ministry that's working in London, standing in the gap in a unique way. Now, we've already met with Andrea Williams on the podcast. Yes. But you are involved as face and in the nitty gritty of places where, of course, Pretty much every Christian, presumably, 
in this country knows, and in the West probably, knows that the world is not just gently different to the church in our time, but it seems to be veering in it in radically different directions. And yet, uh, and so the church says, what do we do? And the significance of uh, these radical diversions are affecting us, and people are afraid that they are going to get in trouble for using the wrong words in their jobs. People are just trying to hold down a quiet life and sure. just just uh, acknowledging things which 20 years ago were obvious mm. and now um, uh, are uh, contentious. Yes. Now, you are head of policy, so can you describe to us what that kind of thing involves in your uh, maybe your daily routines? Or- sure. So, I mean, at the moment, the two big policy things that we're trying to push back on are a... Um, DIY abortion or, or pills by post-abortion and B, conversion therapy. So to sort of talk about those in turn, um, the DIY abortion, so this was an emergency measure brought in back in March 2020 at the height of the sort of lockdown and, and, and panic over coronavirus that was going on. And um, the, the abortion lobby was has had this as a long-term aim to get it pills by post. They can just, you know, phone up, I want an abortion pill, thank you very much, send that out. And the government initially said, no, we're not going to do this because we're concerned about all the risks and coercion and all this kind of stuff, and then backtracked under pressure from the from the abortion lobby and made it legal um, uh, to for them to send out pills like that. Now... Then, of course, you know, here we are, you know, approaching two years later now, and it's still the way. Mm. And, you know, mystery client surveys have shown that a woman can phone up, give a false name, a false address, uh, a fake GP registration, and um, and obviously a fake gestational age, and all this kind of stuff, still get sent the pills. Gosh. So basically, it's, it's complete free-for-all. Anybody can get them. You can get them from somebody else, if for that matter. Um, and obviously, you can be coerced or, or whatever else. So there's no real safeguards on this. Um, and so, you know, we've been pushing back very hard on that. We did do a legal challenge to the decision, which revealed all sorts of internal correspondence and how in, into the, into the government, the, um, DOI Bush, the abortion lobby is. And then we've been sort of showing case studies and this, like this, um, mystery client survey as well and other evidence to say this is not good medicine. This is not, you know, care. If, you know, you can't check the gestational age. You can't check whether they're on the NHS. You can't. You know, there's one third more ambulance calls for these women, and there's no care for them. One in seventeen women taking these pills up, end up in hospital. Good grief! That's not a pill that you give over the counter or you you you, uh, you know, get by phone if it's that level of risk to you. Um, so we've been pushing very hard on this and lobbying MPs and so on, and that's been a big part of my job over the last, I suppose, two years now, nearly. Um, and then the other one is conversion therapy, where. Um, the government launched a consultation back in end of October, beginning of November 2021. They initially wanted it only to run for six weeks. They, they ran into difficulties and a lot of pressure from that, so they had to extend it to the 4th of February 2022. Their proposal is that uh, they basically want to criminalise certain types of conversations um, about sexuality and gender. The interesting, the government acknowledges that physical acts done in the name of conversion therapy are all already illegal. So we set that aside, right? So we're not about new laws to criminalise any physical acts because they're already illegal anyway. So what it means is we're criminalising certain conversations. That's what's actually going to happen here. And they're saying that you have to have a consent form that says the government thinks this is really not a good idea and um, under-18s cannot consent. And therefore, if you've got a gender-confused under-18-year-old, somebody who tries to say maybe you are just a boy after all or a girl after all, 
could be accused of a conversion therapy and prosecuted for that or a pastor or a youth worker or a social worker or a friend or a relative. So it's a very, very oppressive and dangerous mm-hmm. law. And mm. we are trying to work very hard to persuade people that this is not the way a free society should go. I mean, criminalising certain conversations is just not what free societies do. Mm. Um, and people should be allowed to seek help and therapy if they want it. Nobody's talking about pressuring anybody to do it. You know, but people want to have a trusted conversation with somebody about their struggles. And most of us have had struggles of some kind mm. um, in our lives. And this would be basically saying you can't do it. And, and even if you know, therapists will shy away from it like the play, because you know, there's a risk that somebody could later accuse you of engaging in conversion therapy or something. So anyway, the, the consultation closes um, February 4th, and then we'll see where the government takes it and how the government responds. Yeah, we're encouraged because actually there's been more pushback definitely than the government expected Good. on this. It's not just Christians. There's also the whole gender-critical movement that's very upset wow. about it. Um, and, so, and then there are people who are recognising the free speech issues as well. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we're hoping and praying that the government decides, as they did with the gender recognition um, consultation, right? They, they did a consultation on, shall we bring in gender self-ID? And after the consultation, they said, actually, no, we won't, mm-hmm. right? So it's quite possible that having done this consultation, they will say, actually, no, we won't do this, mm. right? But the lobby and the pressure is very, very hard, and, and the opposition parties are all very supportive of it. So it's a challenge, but mm. it's not impossible with God, so we'll see. Mm. You are the Christian people who are involved in these things, and mm-hmm. it, it seems extraordinary that we're having to having to fight battles. I imagine I myself, and I can't obviously imagine what's going on inside your mind, but I can imagine saying, "But this is so obvious. <laughs> this is so. This is this, everyone can see." I'm always interested to notice when full unbelievers are saying similarly. Oh, come on! Don't be ridiculous. Well, the whole LGBT ideology is so deeply influenced our culture now and so your average uninformed you know politically relatively aware person would tend to think you know well of course conversion therapy is bad mm-hmm. and that's the problem that we face mm. yes and unfortunately under that umbrella of as you say conversion therapy you're just saying simply people having conversations yes becomes a criminal that's what therapy issue. is yes, it's a conversation this is it's it. a private consensual conversation Striking. right so that's what you're talking about. Mm, mm. So you, you got right involved in this, and of course, presumably, like uh, three, four years ago, you were on a completely different uh, challenge, which you're, you're fighting away at. Eh? Well, <laughs> always something new. Yeah, yeah well, so. you go. Excellent. And now you've done maths and uh, computing. Yep. And you've gone into finance, fund management yep. at a high level, but now you're involved in the legal side. Yep. And uh, but though you policy have, rather than legal, right? Because you're actually close to lawyers who actually had uh, yeah. uh, Christian concern. Yeah. But you've, I imagine you you're able you're able to think like a lawyer somewhat. Yeah, I suppose I see myself more as a cultural analyst in a sense, or a, you know, and that kind of thing. But obviously, you do get involved in the law and what the law would say and the le- implications of law and stuff. Do you know? I mean, I had a very interesting experience in finance one time when I was working with the, um, the senior lawyer for the company I worked for, and she had to write a letter that expressed. A particular legal opinion and she sent it to me for approval and i read it and i read it carefully and i read it and i thought what's going on i couldn't believe it. she'd actually expressed the opposite opinion by mistake you know in all wow. her flowery language wow right she actually expressed the opposite opinion of what we intended and i had to send it back to her saying don't we actually intend to say this and not that she was very embarrassed you know i mean she could have lost her job for that but you know what it wow. shows is that non-lawyers you just have to read carefully right Mm. and understand it and Mm. you can do that and you can see what it really means and sometimes these lawyers can get lost (laughs) in their own language Uh, (laughs) 
I th- you know, I think there's a parallel there with uh, some of the great theologians, I find, because there's a, that people are afraid, oh, no, he can't read that guy. You just can't. Yes. It's, it's, it's impossible. Yes. When you, when you read someone like a, an Owen, you think, yeah. well, I was so helped when I heard that Ian Murray advises people, should read just one page, just a page. <laughs> you try it. I've been reading a page of Owen for a while now. Right. And you right. just find, right. oh, this is just wonderful. And also, I feel like I'm getting to know him. I'm right. thinking, when he brings up this subject, I know what he's going to say. Oh, he did. I'm getting to know him. And, isn't he, and, he find, and then when he says, he likes a very long-winded way, though, doesn't he? He, he is can long-winded. be convoluted, yeah, yeah, yeah. but and and you can find him to be glorious in short doses as well. Right. But you tend to find also that when you're reading him, when he says something about the gospel which blesses you, you're thinking, "Hang on, I thought that I must be all right there." <laughs> Because he's saying something which, uh, which is just simple gospel, and that's yes. where the value comes in. Yes. Yeah. So how was it that you came to understand the gospel yourself? Oh, right. So I grew up in a Christian family in Stockport, and we went to church, and we went to Crusaders every week as well. Uh, but if you'd asked me as a teenager, young teenager, what does it mean to be a Christian, I would have said, um, try to be good and go to church. Mm-hmm. That was my understanding. Right. Um, of the gospel and so but then i went to an evangelist event and um and it was sort of explained for the first time to me jesus died on a cross for our sins and and that's what made the difference and we need to respond to that and it all sort of clicked into my place in my brain i thought oh this is what oh that's is what why didn't we tell me this before kind of thing and i responded and i experienced god and and that was real but it was something like the seed in rocky ground because it didn't last. There was no sort of discipleship or I didn't follow it up or, you know, however, however you want to explain it. I became quite a convinced atheist, actually, hmm. for much of my teenage years. This, I, I basically took what I was being taught in school, which was an assumed worldview of something like scientism. Nobody said be an atheist, but I, the logical conclusion of what I was being taught was that science could explain everything. Um, and so I became a, a pretty convinced atheist. I decided free will was an illusion because it must all be just molecules reacting and stuff like that. Um, and if free will is an illusion, then there's no morality and all of that kind of thing. But deep down, I did know, right, that I'd experienced something that I couldn't explain. And so, you know, it was then going to a Christian camp, actually just before I went to university, and thinking I need to talk this through with somebody and talk yeah. it through with somebody who was able to give me answers that nobody had done before about um, you know, basic apologetics, really, and mm. the interaction of science and Christianity, all that kind of thing, that enabled me to decide, right, I'm going to take this seriously and decide. And that, you know, then ended up sort of getting very involved in the Christian Union and growing as a Christian since then, really. Mm. Do, do you remember? Do you remember what, what it was about the apologetics that especially helped? Well, I think nobody. I'd, I'd never had any apologetics. I mean, nobody had ever explained to me the evidence for the resurrection or anything like that. You know, so I'd never, you know, never had a defence of the historicity or the truth of Christianity. I'd just been. I had a lot of Bible stories imprinted into me, but nobody had tried to defend them or explain why they're true, particularly. So I had no basis for believing that mm. at all. Mm. So that is what I needed, really. Well, Excellent. now, you know, I'm passionate about apologetics now, and I, I teach my young people and have t- taught youth groups, and I think it's very, very important for them to have a grasp yeah. of apologetics yes. um, yeah, yeah. as they go out into the world. Yes, of, and, and similar to the thing about the theologians a moment ago, mm. you find when you look into the hard questions of life, you know, frankly, it's not like that we're on the losing side. We have quite huge answers. We're, oh, we're, yeah, no, totally. And, and yes. the scientists be, seem quite arrogant because they're, they're, oh, of course, the Christians are wrong. 
please, can you just explain to me what you think I'm saying, scientist? <laughs> well, yes. And of course, scientism is self-refuting as well, because, you know, how can you make a statement saying science explains everything and prove that? Have you proven that by science? Well, this is it. Right. So, you know, so yes, you know, but yes. So once these things are sort of explained to me, I sort of, you know, grasped it and thought, ah, this is it, you know, so yes. Oh, bless yeah. God. And then you were in at, at Oxford uh, mm-hmm. doing maths and uh, computing, but you were essentially almost coming like a fresh Christian. Can you... Yes. Uh, did, did you have anything to do with Oiku or anything while you were down there? Yes. Um, my college had a quite a strong CU, actually, at that time. Um, and so I was really blessed by that and got very involved in the college CU. I did also end up on the mission committee of Oiku as well, and, and OIQ was wonderful, and I also enjoyed the church. And um, I was also very influenced by Roger Price, if you come across him. Uh, a very In the 1970s, he was like the, the most popular Bible teacher in the world. His, his tape ministry was going all over the world, mm-hmm. cassettes as it was then. Mm-hmm. And somebody in RCU had a full collection of those, those, those cassettes. In my second year, I basically listened to one every day. And took the notes. I still got the notes today. And it's basically like going to Bible school, you know, wow. Bible college or something like that. You know, I got a basic overview of the whole of Christian doctrine mm. um, through that. Very, very influential in my life, mm. um, Roger Price. And you can still go and get those. They're on MP3s. You can still go and get those mm. teachings today. Um, and um, that was a very, very solid foundation mm. that I got um, for my whole sort of theology and thinking. Wonderful. And then you yeah. came down to London to help with the church plant in Barnet. Yes. Yeah, superb. Yes. Now, and you come to London, a, a town which I will normally, when there's not a jolly pandemic, I will normally be meeting people throughout the week. I, I would typically meet people from multiple continents throughout the week sure. to take them through the stories of what God has done in London. Mm. Who have been people who have inspired you who mm. have, uh, from history mm. or even in your life? Mm. Well, I I reckon I've got four people that I would say are endlessly fascinating. I could spend my entire life studying them and what they wrote and what they did and not get bored. Mm-hmm. Right? One of them is Jonathan Edwards, the theologian, um, who I've read a lot of his works and uh, really enjoyed them. Oh. And uh, another one is Winston Churchill. Oh, uh-huh. So not a Christian necessarily, mm. maybe, but we can get onto that if you want. Um, and uh, C.S. Lewis, uh-huh. another one, and then Sherlock Holmes. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, that's those are the four. I'm trying to think of an order that they do. <laughs> <laughs> no particular order. Yes, yes. <laughs> but Edwards, you, 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 and you say you've read quite a lot of his works. Well, I've read all 23, the published volumes. Yeah, yeah. So I first read um, Original Sin. And it must have been 20 years ago or something I read that. Because um, I just sort of thought I've never read anybody on this and what's going on with it. And, and I don't know why I picked Edwards, but I did. And I just read it and thought, wow, this is really profound arguments. This is so clear. It's so well expressed. And these arguments, these illustrations that are still, you know, you can still use them today, you know, uh, you know in, in sermons, things, which I do. Um, and I, I, I was so struck by it. I wrote a whole outline of the book, um, every every argument, and summarised the, the thing and everything. And I just thought I've got to read more of this chap because he's really profound and really, you know, mm. powerful. And so, yes, um, Edwards, yes, massive influence, a real spiritual hero of mine. Mm. I've preached a sermon on him as well, mm-hmm. um, and still read, try and read every year some books by him That's or about him. How did you? How were you introduced to him? I can't even remember. Oh, I, yeah. I just picked that book. So it must have been recommended somewhere, and I thought I've got to read this. Yeah, now, twenty I, years I ago. This is you're 
you're kind of you're kind of on the wave. There are people starting to become interested in it. Do you remember that? Yes. Do you remember yes. People I mean, I read it in Murray's biography. Maybe I read it. Maybe I read that first draft. I'd have, I could go and check, but I don't remember now. So, I've read um, yeah two or three biographies now. Uh-huh. What, what yeah. would be a biography of his that you would recommend? Do you recommend? Well, Marston is obviously the the great one, isn't it? That's yeah, interesting. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, this is the thing. I, I, Ian Murray was the first one I read. Yes. He tells the story, but Marsden, I would think, gets into Marsden the Marsden goes into some of the theology yeah. as well. Yeah. yeah. And he, get, he seems to tease out the beauty yeah. element. Yeah. And John Piper's also great. And, yeah, then you've got the... Which one is the biography of his wife that is really, really oh, yeah. good this as well? Oh, yeah. Dodd's Marriage to a Difficult Man. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Really good. There's, there's lots of great books on Edwards that I've read and I've been very, very inspired by. Mm. Yes. Yeah, he's a, he's a, something of a companion. Hmm. <laughs> And I was interested to, to note lately, of course, that uh, later in life, because he, he's famous for preaching sinners in the hands of an angry God, but later in yeah. life he says, uh, no, I wouldn't do that again. Did he? I didn't actually yeah. know that. Strikingly. Because uh, like uh, Lloyd-Jones says, uh, Edwards, he says he, he let his imagine, imagination get away with him. <laughs> he was preaching hell. And well, there's incredible rhetoric in that. I've, I've read a whole book about that sermon. I mean, it is quite something. You know, you realize, do you know that in the hands, you know, that was like a phrase for when they were going to be condemned um, and things. And, um, you know, found people got converted, did they not? So the second time he preached it, something like that. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But he said, yeah. he looked back later yeah. and said, those people who, he said, I saw fruit from that. Yeah. But he says it didn't last. Because yeah, people yeah. were utterly, utterly terrified. They were just terrified, yeah, which isn't the best way. Well, yeah. he's, he, yeah. the, the striking thing was, he said, the people who lasted were the people who saw the beauty. Mm. They weren't just terrified away from hell, mm. Mm. as twere, but they saw the beauty of Christ and ran towards. Now, that's mm. a, that comes out later in his uh, later sermons um, put out by Michael McMullen in the last few years hmm. still it says on the front of the book the unpublished sermons which is right kind of an oxymoron. i've come across that it's on my wish list <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> i haven't got that one yet the unpublished yeah, what's yeah. this then if i'm holding a book which is unpublished <laughs> so yeah and so edwards has been a, he's been a friend yes and then uh, was it churchill next yes uh-huh. yeah so i um i read churchill's second world war six volumes some years ago it's so i mean edwards is i mean sorry churchill is so readable yeah, his tone of phrase, his language, you know, he got the Nobel Prize for literature, didn't he? You know, and so, and I just thought I really, I really loved his writing. And obviously he had such a profound life uh, in terms of influence and all that kind of thing. And then I just read, you know, nearly all his works, I think now. Mm. Um, and I read a chapter, you know, this book that we've published just last year. I read a chapter on Churchill's Christianity in here because um, often overlooked, but, you know, his... Um, his nanny was an evangelical Christian, uh-huh. and up until he was 20 years old, he said she was my closest friend, and he had a picture of her on his bedside table right up till the day he died, mm-hmm. and uh, she definitely influenced him in terms of Christian thinking and so on. And he prayed, Churchill did, and he credited answers to prayer um, some of his life, particularly when he escaped from South Africa in the Boer War, and he wrote in his memoirs, the, My Early Life, he said... Um, I prayed long and earnestly, and my prayers, as it seems to me, present tense seems, were answered. Now, he could have said seemed, right? Writing 1930s, so 30 years later or so, um, my prayers, as it seems to me, were answered. Mm. He's crediting God. And he quotes the Bible quite a lot, and um, and he talks about prayer at other times, and a real sense of destiny and providence, met with Billy Graham. Mm-hmm. Um, 
really nervous about that meeting. Yes. I mean, John Colville says he was pacing up and down and all this, you know, and he let Billy Graham pray for him. Mm-hmm. And we don't know exactly what happened there, but who knows? I believe that in Billy Graham in his own autobiography says mm. he's, he asked me to keep this quiet until mm. he had died. Mm. And then he lets you in a little on that. A little bit of that story, apparently he said that, probably he just said that, that, um, mm. that, uh, that Sir Churchill let him pray for him. Yeah, striking. Mm. Fascinating to think of a man. And he who, said the Bible is reliable as well. That's the other thing he said. The Bible is more reliable than all the telegrams and things we have today. You know, so he had a real respect for the Bible, and he actually sort of has a critique of the sort of liberal people who dismiss it as legendary and all this kind of stuff mm. as well. So, you know, it's, you know, what it reminds you, whether he himself had a Christian faith or not, was how influential the Christian worldview was mm. to most people in those days. Mm. Yes, and we had Temple as, prim- as um, Archbishop of Canterbury. And he was, yes. uh, he said some helpful gospel stuff. Carson's very positive about his, his commentary on John. Mm-hmm. And if you read through that, there's some beautiful gospel mm-hmm. clarity in that. Uh, right. Although Temple himself was probably not be uh, fully evangelical, but he was, uh, mm-hmm. he had some lovely gospel uh, clarity. His Temple who said, uh, when I pray, com- coincidences happen. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and when I don't, they mm-hmm. don't. Mm-hmm. It says mm-hmm. a lot. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And is there a biography of Churchill who you say this is the great one? Um, well, I'm reading through the um, the uh, authorized biography. You know, the eight volumes. I'm on volume four or five now of that. Uh, My early life, his own autobiography. Uh, That's the best one. You've got to read that one. Mm-hmm. And yeah. then uh, C.S. Lewis. Yes. Oh, did you ever meet him? No. <laughs> I had the extraordinary privilege. Is that of, possible? Was no. I alive when he was alive? I don't think I was, though. So. <laughs> I had the amazing privilege of interviewing Dick Lucas, right. who just dropped in at one point. Right. When I was at Oxford, he said, my tutor was C.S. Lewis. He says, just drop that in. Right, well. Yeah, but he was, uh, well. he, t- he said, I, I shudder when I think I used to have to go and read to him my essays, you know. But um, <laughs> I read an interesting book about uh, people who had Lewis as their tutor. Right. And you got this fascinating picture. You'd sit down with Lewis and you would be mm-hmm. looking at a text. And it wasn't as though he was the master. It was as though, rather, we both together come under the text and try and mm-hmm. understand it. Mm-hmm. But just Lewis has read a few more books and has a bit more experience. Mm. I thought that was a striking picture of a, of a student and, a, and their teacher or kind of a Paul and a Timothy type thing. Yeah, remarkable. Yeah, yeah. tutor. Yeah. And so what, do you remember when you discovered him? Well, I... Um I mean, it obviously would have been The Lion, the Witch, the Wardrobe, and that whole series at some point first. But then Mere Christianity, somewhere down the line, mm. what a clear and concise and readable and accessible explanation of the gospel that still is. But then, you know, his his various other book, Problem of Pain, mm. um, I think I got the first and, and, and the later edition of that, because it's quite interesting that he changes his argument at a certain point, because mm. Elizabeth Anscombe criticised it uh-huh. um, and stuff. So, so there's a bit of kind of philosophical stuff in there. I do like, I like philosophy, but also his, you know, a grief observed, very powerful sort of reflection on what grief is like, isn't it? Mm. Yeah. So, and then books about him that sort of bring out some of the arguments he was using about consciousness and, and the reliability of our faculties and things like that, mm. that were very clever, you know, so simply expressed and yet actually very deep and clever when you delve into them. Yes. Mm. That's no. the thing, the simple yet profound. Yeah. I think it was Roy Hattersley said, uh, you know when something's genius, when someone says something, and you think, I, I had always thought that, 
but not in those terms. I thought it was an interesting mm. way of putting it. Mm. And uh, you find mm. that, uh, that simplicity. Also, I, I, I like when you're reading Surprised by Joy and you get the, this, or read his letters, mm. and you get the sense of a life where he, he would go to books in a way that we go, in our generation, we go to TV or a screen. Yes. So he'd say, I've got some time. And he'd just go to Jane Austen or something and just refresh himself. And, and then, of course... He would. Uh, he enjoyed George MacDonald, and some of the the pleasure he had would sort of uh, come out in his uh, in his own thought and heart, and so on. Yeah, yeah. Have you? Have you? Did you come across this film, the the Max McLean film? Not the most recent. I haven't seen it yet. No. Yeah, is it good? I, I recommend it. Yeah, it's simple. Right. Essentially, all the dialogue is essentially from Surprised by Joy. Yes, and yes. he's just speaking to you. Yes, and walking you through his experience. Oh, well, right. Okay. Yeah, I've seen that, and well done, com- uh, professionally done, but right, uh, very clear gospel stuff. Yeah. Okay, great. Yeah, yeah, so. good. And then Sherlock Holmes. Yes, well, <laughs> you know, I do, I just love I love a detective novel. In fact, I have to confess that I read the whole work of Sherlock Holmes when I was a teenager. It's one of the things that influenced me to become a atheist. To be fair, wow. right? Because the worldview behind it is, yes, you know, there's there's a rational explanation for everything, and and that's that's kind of where it goes to that kind of reinforced my atheistic thinking at the time. But but now I sort of think I love the logical thinking behind it and and just the sort of how is this going to get solved and and some of the puzzles are just so clever so yeah i still enjoy reading them and reading about them and reading analysis and like you know even some of the philosophy behind ideas of Sherlock Holmes and stuff like that yeah so mm. it's kind of a pet hobby of mine a bit yeah. you know <laughs> and do, do, do have you have your do you have your boys picked up your reading do they enjoy this yes i mean i've read quite a lot of Sherlock Holmes to them both i wouldn't say they're both that much fans they sort of grown a bit at my enthusiasm <laughs> <laughs> sweet. Well, you're in the right town for Sherlock Holmes. Yes, yeah. Now, uh, what are you up to at the moment, Tim? What's what's new with you? Well, as I said, we've got this um, book, Beyond the Odds, um, which is mainly written by my friend John Scriven. Um, it's a history book, Providence in Britain's Wars of the 20th Century. Um, it really features chapters about World War One and World War Two, and also the Falklands. And I contributed two chapters to it, one on Malta and the Siege of Malta, and one on Churchill, which we just um, discussed about his Christianity. And it's just been, been great to get this out and to have it warmly received and reviewed um, in a number of places. Mm. And just the sense that we've lost a sense of God's role in history. I mean, in fact, you know, historians are anti-God in the sense, you know, we can't possibly ascribe anything to God, is their worldview in it. And something like the film Dunkirk sort of erases any idea of a national day of prayer or anybody praying or any any perspective that God might have done anything in the mix of it. Whereas the, the generation at the time mm. definitely viewed it as a miracle that God had done and, and that God had answered prayers and there was a service of thanksgiving about it and all of that kind of thing so we're trying to bring some of that perspective back really mm-hmm. um and remind this generation remind people of this generation how much of you know people credited god and people prayed and people saw answers dramatic answers in some cases to prayer and some simple answers as well and um get people thinking you know let's let's try and get back to that again mm. um in the mix of it mm. so that's sort of the idea behind this book Good question. You must have done some serious digging, getting into the old Malta story with Dobby and so on. Yeah, well, I mean, I'd already read um, this very present help by William Dobby, who was a gentleman in Malta at the time. I did have to read a bit more about it, yes. But, yeah, I basically tell that story. I mean, he was very you know, significant and rose to quite an important role in the World War One. And when people asked him, what did I do in World War One?" he said he, he stopped it because he suddenly ended up signing the order to, of the <laughs> armistice. Um, 
and then he was wondering what to do when World War Two came along, and then he was lots of opportunities didn't quite materialise, and then he was offered the governorship of Malta, and he really saw God hand, God's hand in it, mm. and um, he prayed, and every evening in the um, governor's residence at dinner. He would offer extempore prayers for the situation and um, people didn't have to participate if they didn't want to, but they all respected it and did and they saw remarkable answers to prayer. And it was a very, very tough time. They had to ration everybody extensively. The, they had you know, much more bombing than London did per relative to the um, acreage or whatever and even by the population as well. Yeah. And some remarkable sort of deliverances and answers to prayer, you know, just a few aeroplanes in the face of hundreds coming against them. HMS Illustrious came in to dock for repairs. A hundred planes flew over intending to bomb it. And people watched and thought, how could anything survive that? None of them hit. The, none of them hit. Not Good even gracious. one. Not even Good one of them gracious. hit. A second time round, they tried again. Oh, my word. And again, not one of them hit. You know, I know that, that is definitely God kind of thing, you know, and and a bomb fell, you know, um, William W. describes he saw the bomb fall in the Rotunda Church, like an iconic building in Malta with a the famous dome and, and it landed right on the dome and he and he rushed in to see what had happened. Three hundred people were in there worshipping. The bomb went through the roof, two hundred feet down, landed on a stone surface, then whizzed down the stone some few hundred metres, never exploded. Good gracious. Yeah. Well, underground, it went straight down and didn't explode. Yes. Oh, my word. <laughs> 300 people in there. Yeah. Extraordinary. Yes. Wow. I think, I gather it's framed now in the, in the cathedral, <laughs> wow. that bomb. Yes. <laughs> Good gracious me. Wow. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, a nation. So, there are great stories like that that we've forgotten. You know, most people don't know these kind of stories. As well. My favourite story from the book is um, World War One, actually. And uh, all the soldiers are issued with a Bible. Mm. And not just for spiritual sustenance, but for geographical information. Good gracious. Did you know that? Yeah. <laughs> so, so one officer found himself near a place called Binkmash. And he thought, I'm sure I've found that place in the Bible somewhere. So he went and found it, 1 Samuel 13 and 14. Do you remember the story? Jonathan and his armor bearer. Oh, uh-huh. And they go up through a narrow pass between two big rocks and surprise the Philistines. And, and the Philistines panic and there's a rout. So this officer said, right, you know, he sent off some scouts, go and find this place where Jonathan and his armor bearer went and let's see what's, you know, whether there's something to do there. So they found that place and the Philistines were encamped just where, the Turks now, were encamped just where the Philistines had been. And so they changed their plans and decided, well, we'll copy Jonathan and his armor bearer's tactics. So they went up there and surprised the Turks and completely caused a panic and they ran off and were completely defeated. And they basically copied the tactics oh, of Jonathan. <laughs> And his arm bearer, like thousands of years later. And you see, that wouldn't have happened if you didn't believe the Bible. Yes, That's yes. the striking thing about it. You have to believe the Bible is true, not just spiritually, but historically and geographically, for the, to even attempt, even consider something like that. <laughs> and, but they did. Yes, yes. And it, and it paid off. And it's kind of a remarkable story about the reliability of the Bible and people's sort of trust in the Bible, isn't it? That's right. And they're not yeah. saying, hang on a minute, are we sure... They're saying, no, we're looking at the, we're, we're going to get our strategy here from Samuel. Yeah. <laughs> Outstanding. That's fantastic. Oh, yeah. wonderful. You, you've told us a little about what's happening with, uh, with Christian concern at the moment. Will yeah. you just tell us a little bit about what is it, what do you say Christian concern's role is in the church, in the country in this time? So we consider it that we have the privilege of being a voice for the church or a voice for Jesus in the public square. So we get to speak for the church or speak for Jesus in court, in parliament, in the media, 
and generally in the public square and try and represent what Christians think and what the Bible says um, to the culture and to society. We're quite often in the media, on the radio, on TV or something like that. Mm. And um, we run court cases as well and so on. And we lobby MPs and so on. Mm. And that's that's our role and that's our privilege really to represent and be a voice for Christians in society and to say this is this is how we view it and this mm. is how God views it and mm. this is what we think and you ought to respect this and take this into account and, mm. and try and articulate why as well sometimes you know around complicated issues whether it be abortion euthanasia or, or conversion therapy whatever it is and I'll try and articulate as best we can what we think and why we think it right and if a believer is wondering at the moment what, what, what is this conversion therapy thing and am I going to get in trouble or, or how do I know if what the actual law is are there resources and so on which you put up there? Yeah, just go to Chris Concern's site and search up conversion therapy, find it that way. Mm. Yeah. That sounds yeah. We, we, we feel terribly cowed, which are yes. afraid of what, what. No, definitely. There's a chilling effect. I mean, Christians feel afraid to say what they think, and not just Christians as well. I mean, this is yes. the whole free speech union has been set up for this reason, because people feel afraid to say what they think. And, you know, with good reason, because they know and have seen stories of people who've lost their jobs or whatever for saying what they really think. Um, about things um, but what does the Bible say don't fear right and so we shouldn't fear man and we shouldn't fear what people will think and so we should just say what we think anyway and take the consequences if we need to you know knowing that God will be there and support us and you know in all our cases that we bring I mean you know, you know we get a thousand case inquiries a year or so and the tip of the iceberg is the ones that actually go into the public domain and get into court and but in in every single one the people that we meet who have sometimes lost their jobs or whatever got into trouble they always say i don't regret it you know because they followed their conscience and they've they've done what they know is right and or said what they know is right or whatever it is and they feel privileged to have had that opportunity to do that um and so that's the kind of encouragement to the church really mm. you know have some courage and do what you think is right and say what you think is right. And very often the law will actually be on your side. Mm. Or, you know, most of our cases are resolved through a letter or, you know, a complaint or, you know, something like that. And, you know, the tip of the iceberg do end up going to court or whatever. Mm -hmm. And that's what actually happens. And, you know, the more we set precedents in law around cases, Felix Nagoli is a, is a very significant one. He was expelled from Sheffield University for posting on Facebook um, disagreement with gay marriage. You know, expelled from university for that. I mean, crazy. Anyway, it got all the way up. You know, it had, to, it had to be appealed and appealed and appealed. Four years later, in the Court of Appeal, he won it against the university. And that sets a very important precedent that you can't just you say this is a bar to employment or a bar to studying, posting your Christian views on sexual morality on Facebook or somewhere else. Quite. So now when people are accused of this or threatened or you know, disciplined or whatever, most of the employers will back down. When you say, well, look at this case, for example, you know, and some of them won't, and then we'll probably win, you know, <laughs> and mm. and then hopefully that will encourage Christians to not be afraid to say what they think. This is a fantastic, this is a fantastic resource, isn't it? Because yeah. as you're saying, often the law is even on the side of the Christian. Oh, it is. Yes. And the other one is street preachers, of course. I mean, street preachers have got arrested. We've clocked up a list of 65 cases, I think, where police, where police have arrested, sometimes charged prosecuted a street preacher and every single case um the charges have ended up being dropped or cleared every single case you know because our laws do protect freedom of speech 
and you can say what you think. And and it's not an offence to be offensive. I mean, that's a crazy world to think that. I mean, the, the unfortunate thing is that some police believe that it is. Mm. Um, but you can say things. You, you know, Section 29J says you can ridicule and, and criticise other people's beliefs and, and exhort them to practice sexual morality and all this kind of stuff and criticise their behaviours. And so, you know, when somebody complains to the police and says this person's being homophobic or Islamophobic, transphobic, whatever it is, the police have got it into their heads that that's an offence. They arrest them, and then you know they drop it or it gets cleared or whatever because it's you know you can actually say. And we're trying we're trying to work very hard. I was yesterday in a meeting with some police actually about trying to get the police to recognise this and so they stop it happening mm. and realise that they should be protecting free speech, not arresting people for saying what they think. Mm, striking. I, I mm. had a little conversation with Tom Holland over the yes, a couple of months ago. And I was talking to him about the influence of Christianity in the, in the mm. West. And he, he immediately said, fascinatingly, he said, of course, uh, one of the great uh, legacy or a, a legacy of Christianity has been atheism. Right. Because you have to think into it. What does he mean? And of course, what he's, he's talking in terms of, you see, uh, prior to Christianity, this is what we all believe and you must. But Christianity, it, because it works by personal in the heart, yeah, I can't. You can't enforce that, and so there's a, there's freedom. There's freedom, mm. and so a country which has been fa- so influenced and blessed by Christianity has as a central priority this 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 uh, mm. this, this freedom. Mm. And uh, ironically, is when you bring in uh, when you bring in another doctrine which isn't Christianity, you're immediately bringing in imposition on that. You're mm. bringing in. You're closing it down. Mm. So that was, I thought it was a fascinating observation by a historian. Mm. It's, uh, you, find, you, when you see good historians, they can't ignore. It's like Melvin mm. Bragg is quite fair about Christians mm. and Christianity because mm. he says, well, you'd be a fool to say Christianity hasn't blessed the world. I mean, look at the universities, hospitals, schools, legal system, government. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, well, we do. Um, we, we the other thing we do is we run a thing called the Wilberforce Academy, um, which is a program, a week long intensive program for young people and mainly graduates, um, sort of starting out their careers to sort of give them a crash course in a Christian worldview on things. So one of the talks I give there is about our Christian heritage as a nation, where I point out all of those kind of things: schools, hospitals, um, hospices, um, medical care, and um, respect for life, and all of this kind of stuff. Mm. And, and you know, also gained things like Boots, the chemist, was found founded by Jesse Boots, Christian. Did you know this? Um, I think, yeah. yeah, and 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 what is it? Twelve out of the twenty-something football teams of the Premier League were originally Christian clubs, churches, oh. church-run yeah. clubs. They did it on Saturday afternoon to stop drunkenness. Three p.m. kickoffs, Christian innovation, um, and it's interesting because it opens their eyes. Barclays Bank, there was uh, Quakers, all these many many Quaker businesses and so on. BBC motto, which is based on Philippians four eight, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure. Think about such things. Um, and so the, you know, the Christian heritage runs deep, and um, and it's still influential, even as it is sadly dying because we're rejecting it and turning away from it mm. as a nation. But it's so helpful when you're explaining that to mm. believers because mm. we, it's like similarly when I take people on a on a walk. Uh, by the time we finished walk, people have arrived thinking I'm part of our funny little religion, <laughs> but by the end of it, they walk around. We changed this country. Yes. <laughs> Our people changed it. Yes. It's, uh, and then you go to the British Museum and say, oh, look, actual Bible items. Yeah, mm. yeah. You'll find a lot of them. Mm. And mm. The, the British Museum's not disputing it, saying, oh, yeah, this is the guy who's named in the Bible. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Super. Excellent. Yeah. Final question for you. Yeah. What advice would you give to people listening to this? Yeah, I suppose something I've been reflecting on recently is telling the truth, actually. And... 
having commitments to tell the truth and not that includes not endorsing things that you know are wrong as well doesn't it and that you know i think sometimes you know i read jordan peterson's chapter in the 12 rules for life on tell the truth and i felt convicted you know and he's not even christian necessarily and and i thought gosh this chap's more more committed to tell the truth than i am and I think that, you know, and then I read, you know, Live Not By Lies by Rod Dreher about, you know, how the Christians under, under the communists, you know, that was the thing they had to commit to. I'm not going to knowingly endorse a lie. And that could mean going to a labor camp, right? I mean, it could, you know, but that was the thing. If once you just, once you've started pretending to be a communist, you're endorsing it, right? And you've compromised your soul and you've compromised your position in this and so wearing an lgbt lanyard or whatever all pronouns yeah you've compromised if you've gone down that route and i think we need a generation of christians who are so committed to the truth that they're not going to compromise in these various ways and they're going to be absolutely sold out and committed to the truth which is jesus of course that's powerful that's powerful Mm. yes Frankly, when you go down, it's like uh, people have observed recently, the L's, B's, G's and T's don't even agree with each other. <laughs> well, <laughs> like, yes, yes. So you tend to find that. Uh, so if you are committing to something which is in itself a contradiction, mm. then um, that's not that, that doesn't help anyone, even mm. them. Mm. Mm. I was talking to a nice young man who was telling me that he was uh, working in a, in a coffee place where he was the only evangelical Christian. Mm. And uh, he said there was on staff there was someone who was, a, who was transitioning. Now on paper they were they were going to be fighting a lot. In reality, he says I was his only friend because mm. everyone else just thought the guy was weird. But yeah. he was just loving the guy, loving the guy. Mm. And you think that that's 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 about consistency. That's yes. about consistency. And the wonderful thing about the gospel is it isn't just do this, do this. It's about tasting and seeing. I'm. This is coming from the life I'm experiencing as I open his word, as I draw near to him. And I can share that with you. I'm going to be a friend. Mm. Mm. It's precious. It is. Yeah. It's been absolutely wonderful to sit with you and have this time, Tim. Great. Thank you so much for visiting East London. Pleasure. And for your time. Thank you. Enjoyed it. For more episodes of the Christian Heritage London podcast and for information on Christian Heritage London events, tours and walks, please go to christianheritagelondon.org.